0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard. It is episode three of the Drop Kicks and Attractions podcast. I am, of course, your host with the most, the Prince of Pop Culture. I am, of course, Xander Invictus, joined by, as Mean Gene would say, my close personal friend, Big Bakkt. How are you, sir? I am doing just
1: fine. How about yourself?
0: I am doing wonderful. Thank you. And I'm speaking of thank yous, I want to thank everyone for all the... Fantastic feedback and everybody checking us out on uh, the first two episodes. We've been getting good feedback. People are enjoying it. So um, we're going to give you more what you like.
1: All righty. And today we're going to wrestling from the week of January 18th, 1993. That's going to be an episode of Raw and an episode of WCW Saturday Night.
0: Absolutely. And we are going to jump into Monday Night Raw of the January 18th. We are still at the Manhattan Center in New York City where we were the week prior. And it is a go-home show for the Royal Rumble. For those that are not familiar with uh, wrestling terminology, the go-home show, especially for television shows, will be the last show before pay-per-view. So we're finalizing matches, storylines, making sure everything's ready to go before the pay-per-view.
1: Right. Now, the show's going to open with with Vince, Bartlett, and Savage, our commentary team. Sure. And while
0: while we're doing this, uh, Rob Bartlett picks up, shows a picture of Bobby Heenan and
1: tears it up. Yeah, he says, "Fight the real enemy." I'm not sure what that's a reference to.
0: This is where the pop. This is where my knowledge of all kinds of crazy stuff comes in, and this is where the pop culture healing twisted. Back in 1992, it was less than a year before this, on Saturday Night Live. You know how Saturday Night Live has their musical guests, right? Sinead O'Connor, pop star Sinead O'Connor, uh, was the musical guest, and she was doing the song "War" by Bob Marley. For those that are not most people have seen Saturday Night Live, so they know there's usually two songs. Each musical guest will have two songs on the on the show. So Sinead O'Connor did the song War by Bob Marley, and at the end of it, she held up a picture of then Pope, Pope John Paul II, said fight the real enemy, and then tore it up in pieces
1: on live television. I didn't I had not heard about that. What was that a reference to something going on at the time?
0: Uh it was just she would you know, just the whole Irish you know, you know, a lot of the problems with, you know, Catholicism and that sort of thing. She was not a fan of that sort of thing.
1: Oh, right. Okay, yeah, now it's coming back to me.
0: And everybody absolutely went livid because she was like, hey, I want to do, the idea was, on the last word of the song, she was going to hold up a picture of, it would have been like a homeless child or a, some sort of child in distress. So like, that's fine. We get that. You can do that. So she had it okay to do that. She did not have the
1: okay to tear up the picture of the Pope. Okay, yeah, I see, wh- I see where this is going.
0: Yeah, and so she had, and she was uh, banned. Lauren Michaels, the executive producer of Saturday Night Live, banned her permanently from the show. Oh, my. And if I'm correct, that was her, I don't think she came back to do her second song. I don't remember if that was her first or second song. And if that was her first one, she never came back for the second, which very rarely does that ever happen. Very, There's only a few instances where guests have never been asked to return or they've been banned from the show. So this was a
1: big deal. I can imagine. Saturday Night Live was huge back in those days.
0: Oh, 93, 92, it was still massive. And so Bartlett did the same thing with Heenan because he's trying to have this feud with Heenan for some reason. And the funny thing was, is if you looked at Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon's face when Bartlett's tearing up the picture, Vince McMahon could not really care. He's like, the look was like, yeah, okay, cool. This is something I also want to notice before we get into this that uh, Rob Bartlett is very much subdued from the... He's still horrible, but you can tell that somebody must have said something to him after the first show because he's nowhere near as blatant as he was the last time,
1: last week. He's taking it down a notch.
0: Yeah, so I, obviously somebody had to say something to him, but like I said, he's he's going to be gone within the first few months. I think I think he's gone before SummerSlam, so...
1: Yeah, moving on from that, unless you have something else to say...
0: Well, no, what had happened is right, Vince is getting ready to go over the card. And while this is happening, uh, Repo Man comes out and uh, waylays Macho Man, Randy Savage, from behind and steals his cowboy hat.
1: Yeah, that's a real quick sequence. And right after that, we cut to the theme song.
0: Yes. Once we come back to the ring and we have the ring. What I thought that was funny is when before we got cut to the theme song, I noticed that there for a while, the very especially normally just the very beginning, they had ring girls like you would normally see in boxing matches. Yeah, I noticed that. You know, with the card showing the round. And I thought it was funny because you're showing, you know, Repo Man laying out Macho Man. And while this is going on, you see the pretty girl in the ring while like, she's not caring what's happening. She's still walking around the ring, holding up the ring card while Macho Man's writhing on the ground. I just found that humorous myself.
1: Yeah, the, the incongruity of it was, yeah, amusing. Sure.
0: And so we go to the first match of this episode and I didn't recognize the song offhand of who was coming out, and it was actually Terry Taylor, who has been around and had been around in wrestling basically since the 80s, has come back as basically just your standard heel character. He was masonly known in WWF around WrestleMania 4 and 5 as the Red Rooster. He had a whole storyline with Bobby Heenan basically saying, I can do whatever I want with you, I can make you, made him the Red Rooster. He actually had a red mohawk and crowed like a rooster. That was his thing.
1: I, I had not heard of that one.
0: And his opponent for this, and I'm actually kind of excited for this match just because how how good both of them were, was uh, Mr. Perfect, who is legit in my top five all time. When I was training and wrestling, it was actually somebody whose videos I watched a lot and was the reason I was really working on doing a fisherman suplex in my moveset was uh, Mr. Perfect.
1: Gotcha. Now, while this is going on, we one of the running gags of the show is Bartlett saying something about where he parked. I'm not sure. I wasn't sure at the time where that was going.
0: Sure, and we'll we'll obviously get the payoff on that at the end. And a lot of what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, Kurt Hennig absolutely killed it with the Mister Perfect gimmick. But a lot of people don't under- realize is that before he gave he got the gimmick, they were actually going to give the Mister Perfect gimmick to Terry Taylor himself.
1: I, that's another thing I hadn't heard. Again, it's my inexperience compared to how long you've been watching. That's
0: oh yeah, absolutely. And the re and the reason I. When I was, this is something I knew I knew before we started doing this podcast, and in just all the research I've done, the, I keep seeing that the main reason that Kurt Henning got it over Terry Taylor was the fact that they felt that one one of the weaknesses, because technically Terry Taylor was very sound technically in the ring, but they felt that he didn't have the charisma that you would need for being called Mister Perfect.
1: And that's just the way it goes with with a performance sport like this. You need to be able to you need to be able to work the crowd.
0: With the gimmick, if you're going to be called Mr. Perfect, you're going to have to do this. So, yeah, they're they're jaw jacking. They're doing a little posturing, trying to size each up, size each other up. Macho Man comes back looking for his hat. The first part, they're, you know, feeling each other out, doing a little bit of light chain wrestling. And they actually call in Heenan, Bobby Heenan, who's talking garbage to Bartlett. They're still having this, somehow having this feud. And I thought it was funny is that how Bobby Heenan was able to sneak a plug-in for All-American Wrestling, which is one of the uh, weekend shows that he's a commentator on.
1: I actually missed that part.
0: Yeah, he's like, oh, you don't understand who I am. You know, I'm Bobby Heenan. I commentate for All-American Wrestling, you know, noon on Sundays on USA. Like, he was able to just, you know, Bobby Heenan was amazing on the microphone. That's why he was considered one of the all-time great managers. And he was able to sneak in a plug, talking garbage to Rob Bartlett, while sneaking into a plug for his show that he commentates for on the weekends. It just shows you how good Bobby Heenan was.
1: So yeah, being able to talk like that, work it in, kind of maybe get it by get it by anyone who might not want to plug for another company. Well,
0: no, no, that was a that was a WWF show. Oh, it was. I didn't realize that. That was one of their weekend shows. Oh, okay. It was usually around Sunday at noon. This is when you know most wrestling was on on the
1: weekends. Now what I'm now as the match goes on, I'm noting that Mister Perfect is using arm bars a lot on Terry.
0: Kurt Henning always had the basics down, like he was. He was trained, he came from the Minnesota area, was trained in the the AWA, which was known, this was one of the big promotions back in the 70s and 80s, and that's where Kurt Henning got started. And they were known for their very technical, sound, technical grappling style. So obviously, you know, that's going to be what he picks up, and it was just something he was always very good at. Right. As we, we go, they ended up going to a commercial, and it was funny, as like, Vince like, yeah, well, we'll be right back, and... Bobby Heenan's getting pissed because he's like, what, you don't know, hey, don't go to commercial, I'm on the phone, what are you doing? Hey, I'm over here, pay attention. And then they come back, and then you see that Terry Taylor is actually, like, nothing, there's nothing at of note that's happened in this match. It is a very basic feeling out process, slight chain wrestling, nothing crazy has happened as of yet. So they come back from commercial, and Terry Taylor is now in control, Heenan's still on the phone and then Mr perfect uh, makes a comeback and Terry Taylor catches
1: him with a uh quite nice spine buster yeah there's a lot of two counts in this match that I saw
0: yeah you could see where you know people you know you could see where technically Terry Taylor and uh Mr perfect were very equal when it came to their their wrestling acumen uh gets his comeback and he gets a rid- he goes for a reverse atomic drop sometimes it's called a Manhattan drop and he gets some ridiculous height on that like there were some great a great spot where you could tell that was both of them where they were able to get some ridiculous height, exaggerated height on a, on the uh, atomic
1: drop. Yeah, right after that, it, I see what I'm pretty sure I recognize as a as the natural selection that Charlotte Flair used to use.
0: No, in a way, uh, hers was more of like a neckbreaker facebuster. They were on their knees. What he did was more of a neck snap. Basically, he did a almost like a snap baron, and he would kind of like instead of them falling in like a neckbreaker facebuster type move like she does. It was just he would grab their neck as he flipped over them to kind of like drive it down and just snap their head back really harsh into the uh, in the mat, which ironically, not only did I you try to add to my moveset, because once again, I watched a lot of Kurt Henning in training. Terry Taylor was known as Terrence Taylor for a while in WCW when he because he went he's gone back and forth between both promotions. He was known as Terrence Taylor and that actually was his finisher in WCW was that exact same neck snap.
1: I got you. Yeah, it, like I said, to me, it looked like Natural Selection, but thanks, thanks for the background on that.
0: Sure, no, like, absolutely. I can see where you come in from. Speaking of Charlotte Flair, which, will, thank you for the segue, while this is going on, Ric Flair comes out in his robe, and, of course, you know, and so we come in, and he's having that feud with Mr. Perfect. They're having a, uh, a kerfuffle. And he comes out and causes a distraction of Mr. Perfect, and Taylor takes advantage of that, drives the knee into Mr. Perfect, uh, dumping him to the outside, and he's able to distract the referee while Ric Flair just starts laying, uh, dropping hammers down on him.
1: Yeah, Flair throws Perfect back into the ring after that, and then Terry goes for a move. But Mr. Perfect is able to get the pin by reversing into a bridging suplex.
0: Yeah, like, he, like you could tell that Terry Taylor was going for a suplex, and it was just so smooth that... The way Kurt was able to counter that smoothly into his own perfect plex finisher. Yeah, that was a really good sequence. Yeah, there was no wasted motion. It was just boom, perfect plex or the fisherman's suplex, and he got the win.
1: And that's a match time of eight minutes and three seconds.
0: And it was a great match. I mean, it was technically sound. I mean, there was no, there was no like, oh my God spots, but it was still a
1: great match overall. Yeah, like like we said last time, sometimes all you need is good fundamentals.
0: Yeah. And we could tell. I'm just going to say that right now. This is actually a better episode of Raw
1: than uh, last week's debut. All right. Next segment is an interview with Bret Hart by Vince. They're talking up the title match between Bret and Rachel Ramon at the Royal Rumble. Sure. Actually,
0: actually, before that, uh, we saw the. You got Lord Alfred Hayes talking about the promotional consideration paid for by the following. And they showed two commercials. And one, the second one they showed was the classic Macho Man doing the uh,
1: snap into a Slim Jim commercial. Oh, yeah. I remember those from when I was growing up. Like, I knew Macho Man's name because of those.
0: Oh, yeah. That's, that was, and matter of fact, if you look and you go a lot of places that sell Slim Jims, there actually is now, still to this day, a savage size Slim Jim. It's this absolutely, it's probably almost a foot long and probably a half inch around. And it's got a picture of Macho Man, it's called their Savage Size, and it's just this huge, gigantic, massive Slim Jim.
1: Yeah, I don't really eat Slim Jim, so I've never had a reason to look for it, but I might t- I might check that out around the, around this area and see if I can find those.
0: And the, the other one I want to talk about was you saw Bret Hart in a gym, and that actually is the actual uh, gym they have at WWF, WWE, whatever, headquarters. That's the actual gym inside the building.
1: Right, yeah, that was for integrated integrated conditioning programs, right?
0: They called it, or IcoPro, it was just called IcoPro, and that was actually a, you know, supplements, protein, that sort of thing, owned by Vince McMahon. He That was a WWF product, a Vince McMahon product, that dealt, That mainly came from his World Bodybuilding Federation. He tried to start his own bodybuilding promotion. That's a fun story, and that actually coincides with somebody's debut in the World Rumble. So I'll save that story for um, our next episode when we do talk about the World Rumble. Okay. So, but yeah, I just wanted to show those commercials because that is, just shows you the kind of, you know, those weren't, obviously they're not going to show the commercials that were normally seen. Yeah,
1: that were on TV at the time.
0: Sure, but those, I just want to show those two because that's absolutely, I remember those commercials as a kid.
1: Right, and it ties into the branding they were doing.
0: Absolutely. So like you said, we were going into the um, interview with Bret Hart about his match with Razor Ramon at the
1: Royal Rumble for the title. Yeah, the, the main the main things, things Bret tries to get across here, number one, attacking me is one thing, going after my family is another thing.
0: Sure, and they, he mentions uh, Stu Hart, which was his father, and you keep hearing about uh, the Hart family dungeon t- to this day, where Stu actually trained basically every Hart in the family that wrestled. And he was also he also trained people like uh, Davey Boy Smith, the British Bulldog. He had a hand in helping tighten up Dynamite Kid. He trained Chris Benoit. He trained Brian Pillman.
1: It's just a well-respected family in wrestling and well-respected training. It sounds like.
0: Basically, if you came out and it was, if you ever hear stories about the how rough the training was, if you came out of the dungeon, you could wrestle. We'll just put it that way. Not everybody could. Not everybody. Finished there, but if you could finish there, you could go and just if you saw the list of Jim Neidhart came out of the dungeon Yeah, so there was if you came out of the dungeon you can go basically and like I said, this was a great basic Promo saying, you know come at me fine. You come at my family I'm gonna kick you, you know, I'm gonna kick your ass the the line that I got out of this that I just found humorous. Bret Hart said he's going to kick Razor Ramon. He's going to kick him down unconscious street. That's just one of those lines I just pick up that just you just like I like that line.
1: Yeah. The second point Bret made was Razor Ramon is not at the bottom of the barrel. He is underneath the barrel, just showing how little he thinks of him at the time. Yeah. And then the last thing was I'm I'm the best wrestler, but this match with Razor is going to be a fight, not a wrestling match.
0: Yeah, and it's like I said, there was obviously Bret Hart at the time was the technical. Razor Ramon was always a brawler. He was a fighter.
1: Right, so it's going to be a clash of styles when we get to the Royal Rumble.
0: And the fun fact, speaking of Royal Rumble, we all know that Razor Ramon is Scott Hall, who who goes on to Hall of Fame career, goes all over the place, wins titles everywhere. With all the tenures he had in WWF, as either Scott Hall or Razor Ramon, He was never in the Royal Rumble match himself. He always, he had a lot, a lot of times he had matches at the Royal Rumble. He was never in the match
1: itself ever. Interesting little note there. I, I, I might've picked up on that as we go forward, but probably not knowing me.
0: Yeah. Like, no, it, like you would expect any, you know, especially somebody who has a Hall of Fame career, like Scott Hall, he would have at least one appearance in the Royal Rumble. He was always on the card, never in the match itself.
1: All right. Yeah. That's an interesting little note. Good trivia.
0: So, uh, we go to the next match is uh, Marty Janetti versus Glenn Ruth.
1: Now, at this time, Bartlett is still talking about his car, and I'm just like, dude, nobody cares. Yeah,
0: we'll, we'll get a payoff for it, but it's just, like... It, once again, we're going to reiterate until he's no longer on here. Neither one of us is a fan of Rob Bartlett as a commentator. Not in the slightest. Um, so, yeah, we're going up against Marty Janetti versus Glenn Ruth, and if the name Glenn Ruth sounds familiar, he would go on to become Thrasher, of the Headbangers, one of the more uh, popular tag teams in the Attitude Era, Mosh and Thrasher is the Headbangers. And also, he, uh, Mosh and Thrasher do become tag team champions, but Marty Jannetty sort of, kind of, but not really was a tag team champion with Shawn Michaels as the Rocker. It happened, but not really. How do you mean not really? Okay. So once again, this is, you know, we're coming off the breakup of the Rockers, which was one of my favorite tag teams as a child. You know, the, you know, the quick, bright colors, that sort of thing. Right, right. They had, and they were never, officially, they're never going to be on the record as WWF Tag Team Champs. What had happened is that there was, for Saturday Night's Main Event, which was that, uh, basically a seasonal show they would have in place of, usually, like, a Saturday Night Live or primetime show, kind of like how we talked about Clash of the Champions, Saturday Night's Main Event was sort of kind of the same concept. Okay. But there was a match they recorded, or taped, rather, was the Hart Foundation, who were the Tag Champs at the time, versus the Rockers. And during the match, the top rope breaks, which is just hazard. It happens. You've seen it. I've seen it happen before in wrestling. Top rope breaks for whatever reason. Gotcha. The Rockers win the match, so they're supposed to have become tag team champions. But for some reason, because the, the top rope broke during the match, they decided the powers the be backstage decided that the match didn't count. So the the belts never officially changed hands.
1: I had never heard of something like that before.
0: Yeah, no, it was weird. Like, they won, but because the ring ropes broke, we're going to throw out that match and it doesn't count. So even though technically the Rockers won the titles, they never became world champions. And if you look in the title history, that's why you never see the Rockers as tag champs. Gotcha. Sort of, You had a Phantom tag champ going up against a future tag champ in this.
1: And as the match starts, Marty offers a handshake. Glenn accepts, then Marty turns his back and Glenn goes crazy.
0: And that's about... uh, the total offense, Glenn Ruth has the entire match. And it wasn't like, and even as we knew this was going to be a squash match, Glenn Ruth is going to be your enhancement talent for this match. It wasn't a bad match. This wasn't like a quick. Yeah. I actually enjoyed it for what it was.
1: Yeah, Janetti got a real chance to show off what he could do.
0: Sure. And like, we understand a lot of times, especially nowadays, Marty Jenny's known for all his unfortunate incidences that have happened to him over the last couple decades. He had with his problems. We're not going to elaborate, but everybody knows that he's had problems in the past. But what people forget is he was very sound technically. This is a chance for him
1: to show that.
0: Yeah, and it showed it very well. And speaking of Shawn Michaels, they uh, were able to have him call in. And they were basically this match was just to help promote the uh, match that's coming up at the Royal Rumble for the Intercontinental title with Shawn Michaels defending against Marty Jannetty, where uh Sensational Sherry is gonna be in somebody's corner, but they don't know who yet.
1: Right. Yeah, that yeah, Sean's talking that up. It's like all, all the women love him.
0: Yeah, because basically there was a there was a moment during this feud where people and cause that was when he became the Heartbreak Kid, that was what his first manager was Sensational Sherry. And if you ever listen to his more rare Heartbreak Kid theme song. And you hear the female singing it instead of the male voice, because that was the first one.
1: Yeah, they had that in the first episode, I believe.
0: That's Sherry Martell singing it. So she actually was singing his theme song first. Didn't know that. Yeah, that's her voice. But there was the there was a moment where they're having the feud and they had, you know, they were still using the weekend shows to promote stuff. Sherry Martell uh accidentally gets a mirror bash against her head. Ouch. Because Sean kind of sacrifices her. He's like, oh, the ladies love me, but I'm gonna hide behind my manager. Because, you know, he's cocky, but he's still I'm going to hide. Right. So this is the idea is that, and then Marty was the one that kind of like, he sort of, it was like, she's called in between them, and this is just, we don't know where she's going to be
1: when this match happens.
0: Right. And like I said, this was just a showcase to show what Marty Jannetty could do, and he actually wins with the the rocker dropper is what he called it.
1: Okay, I wasn't sure what that move was called.
0: Yeah, he called it the rocker dropper. It does look like the famouser that Billy Gunn would use and still uses to this day. But the version that Marty Jannetty does when he kind of hooks the arm like that, if it do, once again, if that does look familiar to more modern fans, that was the version that Kelly Kelly used as her finisher when she called it the K2, where she kind of hooked the arm before she did it. It was closer to Marty Jannetty's version of the Rocker.
1: Gotcha. And that's a five-minute and 12-second match. So surprising for what was basically an enhancement match.
0: Yeah, and, but it still wasn't bad. Right. And then speaking of continuing feuds, they uh, come back from commercial and show a replay of Superstars, which is another one of their their weekend shows.
1: That was a weekend morning show, I think, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. They were both. They would they would usually be like on the weekends. It would be during the mornings, or sometimes usually like noon, one o'clock, like morning, early afternoon shows, like your Manias, Superstars. Um, WCW had WCW Pro. This was like this. This was dub Monday Night Raw was the first real big live weekly. Primetime show? Primetime wrestling show.
1: Now, I'm on I'm that cutback to Superstars, we're watching Doink the Clown versus Crush.
0: No, it wasn't versus Crush. Crush had just won, won a match, and Doink is actually out there with his arm in a sling. Right. They're continuing their food. Doink's like, please don't hurt me. Oh, my arm. Ow, ow. And if you look, you can obviously see the hand's flat. You know it's a fake arm because even the hand with the gloves at, that's a flat hand.
1: Yeah, it's not very convincing.
0: No, but obviously, hey, suspend your disbelief right so uh he has a flower this big old flower crush is giving him the look and he's just like yeah whatever dude he grabs the flower hands it to a kid and as soon as crush turns his back what the arm was fake and he decided he basically beats crush senseless with his arm they come back and vince is like yeah we come to find out that that was filled with lead and crush has a concussion and they're not sure if he's going to be able to make it for uh the royal rumble
1: after that, we cut to Sean Mooney interviewing the Repo Man outside the Manhattan Center, and he does indeed have Randy Savage's hat.
0: The thing I have found humorous with that, though, is that uh, this is—we're looking at about at about 45 minutes show. This is about 25 minutes in. Uh, they're throwing out there, and he's like, "Well, I—we're uh, looking for the Repo Man. I seem to have located him, and it looks like Repo Man is just strolling out the front door." And I'm thinking, once again, you got to suspend your disbelief. Is like, if he's trying to escape with the hat, why is he still there almost a half an hour after he stole it? And it's just strolling out the front
1: door. Yeah, it, it, again, you suspend your disbelief, but if you look at it critically, it doesn't hold up.
0: But no, it was just good. It wasn't that all oh, this was horrible. No, it was kind of goofy. It's like, you've been dancing around for half an hour? Cool, that's fine. And I also found out that um, Sean, you know, he's got the earpiece in. And it's like, oh, you're not going to believe all this garbage that Macho Man is talking about you right now. Randy Savage hadn't said anything at all. And Sean, basically, Sean's like, oh... He's basically, it's almost like Sean's trying to spark the fight. Right. And then um, Savage does get the, you know, Repo gets the earpiece and they start talking shit to each other. And it's just, honestly, as goofy as this was, I loved it because you got to think about wrestling, especially in the early 90s. You got two grown men in bright costumes. Repo Man's got a friggin' domino mask. He's got tire treads over him. Randy Savage is full of fringe and neon colors. You got these two grown men in these garish costumes fighting over a cowboy hat.
1: When you put it like that, it does sound kind of ridiculous. And I loved it. Yeah, there's not, nothing wrong with nothing wrong with being a little silly now and then.
0: No, and it worked. Uh, so we cut, cut back to the great legendary Mean Gene Oakland to the uh, Royal Rumble Control Center. Well, like I said, the, the Royal Rumble is going to be that coming Saturday, excuse me, Sunday. So they were talking about the title match between Bret Hart and Razor Ramon. They cut to remarks to Razor Ramon, who basically says, I have gold around my neck. I got gold on my fingers, and come Sunday, I'm going to have gold around my waist.
1: Yeah, after that, we have another round of Royal Rumble par- participants. So,
0: and th- this, a lot of these were not announced last week. We're just add more names, and they added Undertaker, The Berserker, IRS, Yokozuna, Mr. Perfect, Typhoon, Repo Man, Ric Flair, who won last year's, Papa Shango, who most people don't re- most people know now, but at the time didn't realize he would go on to become the godfather. Same guy. Did not know that one. Uh-huh. Hall of Famer actually. Oh wow. And uh million dollar yeah, million dollar man Ted DiBiase. And they also the other match they promote during this segment is the Intercontinental Title match. They're still saying, Hey, what corner is Sherry gonna be in? We don't know. Call your pay-per-view provider now.
1: You know, back outside with Sean, we've got Randy Savage has come up. He's trying to find Repo Man. In the meantime, Bartlett still won't shut up about his car.
0: And then we go to, quote-unquote, the main event of the night, which, on paper, I'm excited about is El Matador versus Ric Flair. And El Matador is obviously Hall of Famer Tito Santana, former Intercontinental Champion, and he's also a former Tag Team Champion. And I just love the idea where it's like, we're going to give ethnic gimmicks because you look close, is that he's a matador. Matador is traditionally a Spanish, it's a quote unquote sport, a bullfighter. You traditionally find those in Spain. It's a Spanish tradition. Where's Tito Santana from?
1: He's from Spain then. He's from Mexico. Oh, Mexico? Duh, I feel silly. He's also built from
0: Mexico. Oh. But he's playing a Spanish bullfighter built from Mexico. Okay, now it makes sense. It makes sense by not making sense. Sure. And obviously Ric Flair, we know Ric Flair, but uh, this was towards the end of Tito Santana's main run. This is what he came back as was El Matador. But if you on paper, like if you ever watched some some of the earlier early 80s Tito Santana and their prime, this match would have been amazing. If you would have given them like 20 minutes, 20 30 minutes, of this match would have been stupendous.
1: Randy Savage is back to the commentary desk as the match starts. Some rope bounces. Flair gets knocked down.
0: And this is what I noticed first off in the match. Obviously, Flair, big heel in this match, big heel at this point. There's a lot of let's go Flair chants right now. And like, not even a little. There's a lot.
1: Yeah, the chants for Tito were very loud loud as well.
0: But it's just surprisingly that, well, I mean, yeah, you're going to cheer Tito Santana. He's always been the good guy, I think, for the majority of his career. But when you got Ric Flair, who's obviously one of your top heels, and he's getting chants comparable to Tito
1: Santana's. Yeah, something's going weird.
0: But then I and I get it it's whatever but it's just something I picked up at and they have announced basically that we are gonna get we got uh, flair comes back with the commercial he's doing that he's doing his thing he gets a jackknife pin for a two count and they announced that next week for the show the day after the Royal Rumble we are getting macho man versus the repo man we're ending the feud the week after it happens this is a one week feud we're blowing off the feud right away
1: Around the same time, the announcers are also hyping up the whole, this is the first time the winner of the World Rumble will, will get a title shot at WrestleMania.
0: Which is true. And personally, I'll go more in depth on this when we do our World Rumble. So I'm not a fan of this idea that you get a guaranteed world title shot. I've never been a fan of that. And I'll, I'll, I'll save my rant. Why? When we get to the actual match next time, next episode. I'm not a fan of it. But yeah, this is gonna be the, this is the first Royal Rumble where the winner is guaranteed a world title shot at WrestleMania, which still goes on to this day actually. And um, we get we start getting some classic flair where he gets a thumb to, he gives Santana a thumb to the eye. He goes up to the top rope before he can do anything. Tito Santana catches him and launches him off the top rope. And I remember I was listening to a show and they were talking about Ric Flair and about why people are always said oh he always did the same stuff every match. He did the you know the flying nothing. And he ends up here right after this where he does that upside down flip in the corner
1: to the outside. Yeah, I I, I saw that. He flipped over the turnbuckle, right?
0: Yeah, and th- those were classic flares. He did those almost every match. And people were, would always wonder why. And he, he told somebody the reason why he does that is that, you know, people are going to come pay to see Ric Flair. They're going to come to see Russell. And when they come to pay to see somebody like Ric Flair, he knows what they want to come see. So he wants to make sure that they go home happy. So he does the flying nothing. He does the upside down corner flip because he knows that's. He doesn't, didn't want people to be disappointed by paying their, their hard-earned money to go watch wrestling and not get what they wanted to go see. So he did that almost every match.
1: Yeah, to use the wrestling language, he had his own spots he would do just for being him.
0: Yeah, because he knew that's what people wanted to see, so he made sure they got it. Right. And so after this, Santana hits a huge knee lift, and he hits his flying forearm finisher, and I'm not kidding, his flying forearm was called the Flying Burrito. <laughs> True story. It started with when Jesse Ventura started calling that, and it just ended up adopted. You got a Mexican wrestler portraying a Spanish bullfighter hitting somebody with a finishing move called the Flying Burrito. As you do. Wrestling, folks. Hashtag wrestling. Yes. He goes to for a second one, but Flair low bridges, sends uh, Santana out of the ring. So here comes Mr. Perfect. He starts brawling with Flair.
1: Yeah, the bell never rings, but obviously the match is over at this point.
0: Yeah, it's a no contest, but I'm thinking it's obvious. And I know the ref sees that Flair and Perfect are th- throwing blows with each other. So obviously this should have been called, you know, a DQ win for Ric Flair. Right. But not only do they brawl to the back with no bell, you can honestly see that Santana's also being helped to the back. And I'm like, we don't get an official finish to the match. We don't get a bell. So I'm assuming no contest.
1: Yeah. Sure. Maybe. The time on that, from the, the from when the first bell rings to the commercial break, as is seven minutes sixteen seconds.
0: And it, they had that was a good match, and they got a lot of stuff in. And they come back from commercial for this. This is our ending segment. We see that Perfect and Flair had fought all the way to the back. They come back for the commercial. Flair and Flair, excuse me, Flair and Perfect are coming. Are still fighting as they come back into the arena. Vince is on the mic with Flair about all this, and Flair challenges next week, Mister Perfect to a Loser Leaves WWE match.
1: Oh, we see Mr. Perfect come out and he accepts the challenge with his line of, I am what I say I am, perfect.
0: Yes, and funny thing was, this was actually, I actually remember watching this live at 10 years old. I still to this day remember watching this match on TV. Ready?
1: And then after that, the show ends with Repo Man towing Bartlett's car.
0: Yeah, we that was the payoff of the car and Repo Man just tows it. I'm like, great. I'm glad we got a
1: payoff to that. Again, Bartlett just doesn't, he can't do it. He can't do this. No,
0: and it's, but overall, that aside, this was actually a much better
1: show than last week's. Yeah, if I was grading on a letter scale, I think I'd give this a B.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. I'd give this a solid B. And there was only, like I said, this was only an hour. There was three matches. But yeah, I would give this a solid B. I would have to agree to that.
1: Nothing lingered. Everything got done in good time is how I'd put it.
0: Yeah, it wasn't too fast. It was It was basically, it's like the three bears. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. It was just right.
1: Good way to put it.
0: So, and that's our uh, wrap-up before they go to the World Rumble that following Sunday. So, we go from that to WCW Saturday night.
1: That's going to be the evening of the 23rd.
0: Yes, and we open up with good old JR. Jim Ross and Larry Zabisco. They're on the 6th. That's going to be our commentators for the evening. They're also giving a short preview of the show. With the main event going to be a rematch of last week's U.S. title tournament final, Dustin Rhodes has already agreed to put the title on the line against Ricky Steamboat to give him a fair fight after what happened.
1: Now, as this is going on, Jr. and Larry are hyping up Cactus Jack and the Barbarian as being a surprisingly popular tag team.
0: Yeah, because Cactus uh, Jack just turned face during the Clash of the Champions last week, so they're uh, so by proxy because Barbarian was. Cactus Jack's tag partner, he's now face as well, and they're getting pretty decent cheers. And we're actually going to see them in action during this episode.
1: Now, we go right into the first match of the night, which is a tag team, Scotty Flamingo and Bob Cook versus Johnny B. Bad and Marcus Alexander Bagwell.
0: Yes, and then when you see the teams come out, and this is nothing against Bob Cook, but when you see a name wrestler and an enhancement talent going against two name wrestlers, you already know who's going to win.
1: Yeah, it seems pretty obvious in hindsight.
0: Sure. And then we're gonna get uh Bob Cook and Johnny B. Bad to start. And obviously uh Bagwell and Bad have the speed and agility. Flamingo obviously was the agile as well because he was a former light heavyweight champion. So this was just a quick bad being super quick, tags in Bagwell and they hit a nice double Japanese arm drag. And they're just starting out with their quick their quick tags in and out and Bad hits that sunset flip that he missed against Cactus Jack at the uh, Clash of the Champions. You can see it's an absolutely
1: gorgeous move. Hits
0: that sunset flip, but it's broken up by Flamingo.
1: Now, as I'm no- as I'm watching these matches, just in general, I'm noting the pinfall counts in this time seem to be faster.
0: A little bit faster. So they come in, Flamingo starts laying the boots on, gets a nice snap, shoot flex on Johnny B. Bad, who retaliates with a very solid-sounding back elbow. Like, you can hear the thunk.
1: Yeah, I, that was that made me cringe a little bit.
0: Yeah, so obviously Scott Clingo plays a smart. He gets back in, and he's tagging in Bob Cook. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good for now. Because you, we uh, we talked about this last week. Mark Murrow, who played Johnny B. Badd, is a multiple-time Golden Gloves champion, so he knows how to throw hands.
1: Now, Bagwell's left arm is getting worked throughout the match, I'm noticing.
0: Yeah, and then you, that's there's a reason that Johnny B. Badd used a left hook as a finisher, Um, because he was a fantastic amateur boxer in real life. So, yeah, so he starts working on Cook a little bit more. Bagwell comes in. He starts using his speed, but Cook lays him out with the right hand, just as solid-sounding and looking as the other one.
1: After that, we have a series of rope bounces off the side, resulting in a flying collision, and both men are down, after which the ref starts counting surprisingly quickly.
0: And it it breaks down quickly into a brawl, but uh, Bob Cook goes for a... Hip toss that Marcus counter. He uh, holds on, counters it into a backslide, and the good guys get the
1: match win. And that's a match time of 5 minutes 47 seconds.
0: Yeah, it was a good starting match. It, it did what it needed to do. It got a nothing, nothing awful into it. It was a good starting match.
1: Yeah, I, I was using the word dense a lot last time. This wasn't as dense as some of the other ones I've seen.
0: No, it wasn't dense, but it was still didn't drag or go too fast. I felt it. it got the time that it needed to tell the story. Right. So we go backstage with Tony Schiavone, who's back there with Barry Windham, and he, meant, Tony Schiavone mentions the end of the U.S. title match where uh, Dustin Rhodes won by countout because Barry Windham DDT'd Ricky Steamboat onto the concrete.
1: Yeah, Windham is hyping up Dustin Rhodes as the champion and says, quote, he did it all on his own, end quote, despite that we clearly saw what happened.
0: And then they also announced that at Super Bowl three, because... We're about, eh, about a month out from Super Bowl three, that Barry Wyndham is going to be facing NWA world champion, the Great Muda, for the title. You had mentioned you
1: were a big fan of Great Muda growing up.
0: Oh, yeah, because when you, when I was growing up, you know, I've been watching wrestling since about 84, 85. You didn't, we didn't have people like the Great Muda. Like, you get the smaller, like, Japanese wrestling is extremely popular in America right now.
1: Right, yeah. I, I had a subscription to New Japan for a while. But you, we didn't
0: see guys like the Great Muda. And so when you're a kid like me, you're seven, eight years old, and you see this guy who's quick, does martial arts, because, you know, martial arts and kung fu movies were popular back then. But when you see this guy with his face paint, doing martial arts, uh, spitting green mist, and he was one of the first people I ever saw. He was the first person I ever saw do a moonsault. Blew my mind as a kid. So I've always been a fan. And to this day, the Great Muda still rustles to this day in 2022. We're in 1993. He was wrestling in the late 80s. We're in 2022. The great mood is still wrestling
1: regularly. That's something like 35 years on. That's really impressive. Yeah.
0: and it's it. Obviously, he slowed down a little bit because, once again, he's been doing this for well over 30 years. He can still go. He hasn't, like, this is not one of those, oh, man, I wish he'd retire. I was like, nah, man, the, if he can still go, let the man go.
1: Absolutely. After that segment, we talk about how Rick Rude has not given up the U.S. title belt despite being stripped of it because he did not defend it in good time.
0: Yeah, so the idea, because Dustin Rhodes obviously won the title last week because of the tournament, is now, it comes out without the belt. Rick Rude is mad that he was stripped. Usually, traditionally, it was champions had to defend their belt every 30 days or they would get stripped. Bill Watt says we gave him 60 days because of his injury. You know, it's sad he's injured. We've confirmed he is injured. But we have to strip him of the title. He's not supposed to come back until March. But that's why Dustin doesn't have the belt because Rick Rude has yet to give it up. And then they show the end of that title match from last week to continue that storyline.
1: Moving on from that, we have Vinny Vegas heading into the ring to face Chad Bird. You said Vegas. You said Vegas was Kevin Nash, correct?
0: Yeah. This was this was Kevin Nash. This was towards the end of his first WCW run. He would be he would become Shawn Michaels' bodyguard, who ended up becoming Diesel. He'd be in WWE as Diesel by the end of the year. And he's still doing the feud with Van Hammer as having the the strongest arm in WCW. And uh yeah, he wastes no time with poor Chad Bird. Chad Bird has nothing chance. Comes in, beats him up thusly, hits the Snake Eyes. And if anybody ever wondered why uh, that move were, especially Undertaker would do it a lot, where he would pick him up and drop them on their face on the turnbuckle and was called Snake Eyes, this is why. I didn't realize there was a name for that. It's called Snake Eyes, and obviously that's why it got the name from Venny Vegas. He called it Snake Eyes because for those that aren't familiar with uh, gambling and casino terms, Snake Eyes, you roll double ones. You roll two, double ones. It's considered one of the worst rolls in gambling. So Snake Eyes, that's why it's called Snake Eyes, Venny Vegas, gambling, this, that, and the other. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, Snake Eyes,
1: match is over. And that's one minute, 18 seconds.
0: We go into the next match. Is Chris Benoit going up against Johnny Rich? And the beginning of the chain wrestling, which you guys know, I'm always a big fan of. Uh, they do mention that not only was Benoit trained by Stu Hart in the dungeon. They don't mention Brett, Owen, anybody else. They mention that Stu Hart has trained other wrestlers.
1: I don't think there was as much of a rivalry at this point as there would be during the Monday Night Wars, but you still, you still don't want to men- don't really want to mention com- a competitor.
0: Sure, and they also mention that uh, Chris Benoit also had uh, extensive. Time in Japan, which he did. That's where he got his name, made his name first in Japan. He was actually, for a while, he would wrestle as Chris Benoit, and he would also wrestle under a mask as the Pegasus Kid. Hmm, didn't know that. So this was actually a very even start. They, uh, Johnny Rich even got a little bit of chain wrestling in until Benoit uh, clocked him with an Ensiguri and that uh, famous Benoit clothesline. Oh,
1: yeah, that was painful.
0: Benoit's gonna take over. Dominates, he actually hits a very nice uh, second rope leg drop, which is not something we saw very often from Chris Benoit. Yeah, and even that only results in a two count, though. Yeah, so uh, Johnny Rich actually took over for a little bit. Uh, Benoit went for a crucifix. Rich blocked it and actually landed a Samoan drop and got a uh, two count. And was actually also able to hit a nice power slam for a close two count as well on uh, Benoit.
1: And after that, Benoit was able to hit his... He's bridging German for the pin. That's the Northern Light Suplex you said? Uh Dragon Suplex. Dragon Suplex, my mistake. Yeah, that'll be a match time of three minutes, 45 seconds.
0: Yeah, I just like how he was able to spin around, grab a backslide, spin around, turn it into the full Nelson Lane the Dragon Suplex. And I thought that was a nice little finish
1: on it. If that yeah, that was a good sequence. Another match that wasn't dense, but it did what it needed to.
0: Sure, obviously we're just using this to get uh Benoit over as one of the new faces in uh, the new faces in WCW. So we head over to the Super Brawl 3 Control Center. They're showing a video package. We're promoting the the Sting versus Vader title match, the White Castle of Fear. I believe it's within the next couple weeks, we are actually going to see the actual mini-movie, White Castle of Fear. It's amazing.
1: I'll be looking forward to it.
0: Like If you guys want to see this, not only are we going to show it here, a video I want to show is I'm a huge fan of Wrestling with the Grid. I love that show. Uh, so Brian Zane actually sat with Cole Cabana, and they went over and riffed all three of the quote-unquote mini-movies, and this was the second one of the three. And it's, for somebody like me who likes cheesy, bad movies, I adored this. So, and then we move on. We're going to mention now uh, the a little bit more talk about the NWA title match between Great Muda and Barry Windham. Uh, we do see the end of the match where Muda won the title with the Moonsault beating uh, Masahiro Chono. In Japan, and then they also continue that we're gonna see Smoky Mountain tag champs, the Rock and Roll Express, are gonna be meeting the Wrecking Crew at Super Brawl.
1: And there's also mentioned that the Rock and Roll Express will be present next 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 episode to scout them out.
0: And uh, speaking of which, we are going to see the Wrecking Crew in action. They come out to face the Italian Stallion and good old Larry Santo. Fury and uh, Stallion try this out. They try to outmuscle each other because. Uh, Titan a good size, and they do mention his AAU wrestling pedigree. He's a accomplished, apparently an accomplished amateur wrestler.
1: Yeah, that's always a good background to have going in going into theatrical wrestling like this.
0: It it's actually started out pretty even until they tagged in Santo, who quickly uses
1: loses the Vanish the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, Santo gets power slammed by Rage and tags Fury in.
0: So, and then what happens is that Santo comes in, starts throwing some drop kicks. Starts throwing. They always say, you know, you know, don't go to the well too often. He did. He missed one. Bottom. They smacked him out of the air. Hit the wrecking ball. Match is over. Four minutes and six seconds. And after the match, Larry Zabisco's out there doing an interview. They basically say that uh, after Super Bowl, they're coming for. They name some of the WCW tag teams. They're like, hey, we're coming for the
1: titles. Yeah, they specifically call out uh, Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas. Yeah, who's the current tag
0: champs. But they're basically like, hey, if you're a tag team, we're going to go through you. We're winning the belts. We go from that interview. We go into what they would had. They had this for a short while. I do actually remember this as a kid. Uh, they called them underdog matches. And basically what it was is they would take some of the enhancement talent and let them wrestle each other. And they say, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to give them a shot to wrestle each other on TV. Maybe we can let them move up the ladder, try to find some new faces. And that's basically what it was. Enhancement talents fighting each other.
1: It's a good concept.
0: Yeah, and so we get Pat Rose and a new face. I believe this was one of his first, if not first, television appearances. Robbie V, and if that name does not sound familiar, but he looks familiar, because Robbie V is none other than Rob
1: Van Dam. That's another name I had heard growing up, but I never knew who it was.
0: Oh, I'm an, I, ever since ECW. I am to this day. I am still an absolutely huge fan of Rob Van Dam. But this was, Robbie V is Rob Van Dam, really early on. I believe this was his first, if not one of his first TV appearances, period.
1: Yeah, JR and Larry are talking about how they've seen Pat before, but Robbie is in fact new. Sure.
0: And so they're going to show that Robbie V is using his martial arts skills and flexibility to take an early advantage. Yeah, I noted that he's barefoot in this. Yeah, that was just, that was just the thing he did when he first started out. Because, you know, martial art, apparently all martial artists fight barefoot, apparently. He actually also popped up, this was something that's kind of surprised me, because you normally didn't see a lot of this in uh, 93, was he popped off a really nice springboard crossbody on Pat Rose, who finally, after a boot in the corner, took over. It was just, like, there was nothing other than the stuff that Rob Van Dam, I'm sorry, Robbie V was doing. Pat Rose was obviously the, the bad guy in this match, but he did a lot of, there was nothing spectacular in this match other than, the, the martial arts stuff that Rob Van Dam, I'm It's RVD, damn it. I know this is his name, but he wasn't Robbie V for very long. He'd end up becoming Rob Van Dam. That was his original name, anyways. So, RVD.
1: Yeah, Pat's left arm is getting worked real hard throughout the match.
0: Yeah, and so basically, Pat Rose takes over for a little bit, but then all of a sudden, uh, RVD gets him, uh, grabs his arm, starts throwing some quick kicks. Get back in control. Uh, he ends up hitting a front power slam, split mega moon salt. Excuse me, split legged moon salt. Match is over.
1: And that's going to be a match time of five minutes and fifty-four seconds.
0: Yeah, like honestly, RVD was the highlight. We, you know, this was a lot of stuff we'd end up seeing him doing years later. But it was just nice to see basically his first ever TV appearance. Is he still wrestling? I don't. I think I. I don't know if he's fully retired, but. I haven't seen him wrestle in a while, but I'm. Sh- he still looks like he's in decent shape; that he could probably make an appearance. But I think he's all but retired. He actually does have a uh, CBD uh, product line because we knew that Rob Mandam has always been a advocate of marijuana. Hmm, did I did not know that. Uh, but no, he actually has a. Uh, from what I've seen, a successful CBD line of CBD products. But he still looks. He still looks like he could. He could go. He still looks in about the same shape as he always has been.
1: Alright, now moving on from that match, we're going to flash back to Clash of the Champions, and Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas are going to call out Brian Pillman and stunning Steve Austin, saying you started this war, we'll finish it anytime, any place."
0: Yeah, and it, the great thing though, not only because they were both good at cutting the promo, the image of Shane Douglas with a bandage over his head, still covered in blood, I thought was great. Like, he's, you see how mad he is, all bandaged up. You also got to remember 1993, this was basic cable, you didn't see the whole, you didn't see a lot of very bloody wrestlers with bandages like this. So I thought it was a really good image. He's yelling. He's like, go ahead. We're going to fight. You you started it. We're going to finish it, bloody or not. And I liked it.
1: I agree. Good good visual, good promo.
0: Uh, so um, we come back from commercial. We see Harley Race, who is managing Paul Orndorf and WCW champ uh, Big Van Vader. Uh, basically, Orndorf and Vader warn their opponents, uh, Johnny Gunn and Tom Zank, uh, yeah, we're warning you because we're going to hurt you and we're going to hurt you bad. This is You you guys are making a mistake fighting us. But then they also continue to call out the uh, people they're feeding with, with Orndorff calling out Cactus Jack and Vader calling out Sting, which takes us into the match itself, the tag match between Johnny Gunn and Tom Zank versus Paul Orndorff and Big Van Vader, who are accompanied by former world champion Harley Race.
1: All right, the match is going to start off with Zenk and Paul Orndorff. They do some side headlock rope bounces. Paul gets kicked in the head.
0: Yeah, a very nice Insigiri. Gun tags in and Orndorff quickly takes over and I felt bad for Gun because here comes Big Van Vader who absolutely just batters Johnny Gun in the corner. Uh watching the way he just absolutely treated not only Gun right now but Zenk later in the match. Van Vader seems like a Dark Souls boss. Oh my, that's I
1: think that is an apt comparison.
0: Where it's like you can beat him and beat him, sure, could you beat him? Sure eventually. But he's gonna hit you with about three moves and you're dead. And you can see how tough and how brutal Van Vader is in here. And I don't think people realize just especially when he was in Japan, because he made his name. He's another one that made his name in Japan, how much pain he can take and how violent he can get. And a perfect example of this, and this is a classic moment in wrestling. He had a match with Stan Hansen, who I considered had the greatest lariat of all time. Early in the match, they're battering each other. This is a true story. You can find the match easy on YouTube. Big Van Vader's eye pops out of his socket. What? Yes. So what does he do? He pushes the eye back in. Oh my gosh. The eye is just swollen shut. It Basically, it pops out, he pops it back in, and then finishes the match against Stan Hansen. That's some guts. It's crazy. Like, you can easily find this match on YouTube, but, yeah. Vader was no joke when it came. That's why he said it feels like, if you're fighting Vader, it feels like you're fighting a Dark Souls boss. But, yeah. Orndorff comes back in. I'm surprised. I know Orndorff could go, he could wrestle, but I was surprised on how nice his dropkick was.
1: Oh, yeah. That was beautiful.
0: But, yeah. So, Zank finally gets a tag in, but instantly gets in trouble. And Vader then comes back in and gives uh, Tom Zank basically the same treatment that he gave Johnny Gunn.
1: Yeah, Vader does a twisting suplex. I'm not sure if there's a specific name for that.
0: Oh, uh, I don't I don't think so. Basically, it started out with a vertical suplex, but as he fell back, he twisted him, so Zank landed on his front, not his back. Gotcha. He tried to get a sunset. Uh, he gets Orndorff come back in. He tries to get a sunset flip. Orndorf negates it, but Zank's able to get an actual uh, cross body on him.
1: Yeah, just gets a two count out of that.
0: Sure. Uh, he's able to tag in Vader. And he actually is able to stun Vader, because when Vader rushes in, he catches him right on the chin with a with a kick, get a couple blows in, and he tags Johnny Gunn, who gets into the same uh Santo problem by throwing one too many drop kicks. Vader just bats him out of the air, hits a huge splash, power bomb, the good old Fire Thunder power bomb for the win. And as this is going on, Zank is given a pile driver by Paul Orndorff onto the outside.
1: Yeah, I'll remember for any interference, so Vader can finish the job. Sure. So match is over with the power bomb, and that's a six minute, thirty eight second match. Yes.
0: So we come back. They have a sit down interview with Tony Schiavone with Sting in full on regalia, face paint, jacket, all this, and they're once again they're promoting. This is the big feud of the this is the big feud of the moment right now. So we're still continuing promoting Sting versus Vader. They talk about where. Sting lost the title to Vader in 92. They show some footage from that. Then they also talk about Starcade, where Sting was actually able to beat Vader in the King of Cable finals. But this this is all it's doing. They're building up... Obviously, the, you, this is going to be your big match, your big feud of your, your upcoming pay-per-view, so you're going to try to promote it the, be, the best you can. I think they're doing a great job with it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, building, really building toward that White Castle of Fear match.
0: Yeah, which, once we get to the actual mini-movie
1: for it, is... Mwah. All right, moving into our next match, we have two Scorpio versus Barry Windham.
0: Yeah, and what I noticed right off the bat, Scorpio pushes uh, Windham right in the corner right away, and Windham retaliates by slapping the upper love and taste right out of his mouth. Like, the sound of that smack was just like, oh my god. Oh yeah, that was nasty. They go a little bit back and forth, Scorpio gets a really cool roll-up, lands a spin kick, and then Barry Windham takes a powder to the outside.
1: Yeah, Scorpio then attacks him with a rope slang. Mm-hmm.
0: and then he goes he goes for that momentum like you know we're doing the speed versus power thing because Barry Wyndham's several inches taller than Two cold Scorpio I believe he was Barry Wyndham was six 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 seven he was a very tall gentleman mm-hmm. so when uh Scorpion runs at him he uh presses him up in the air like that and with Barry's extension you're probably looking at and then Scorpion comes back down you look like that was probably at least a good eight foot drop youch like I said Barry Wyndham was well over six
1: foot tall. Yeah, so Barry's in control, hits that suplex for a two count. Scorpio does some rope balances and goes for a sunset flip. For that gets a two count as well.
0: So yeah, we're going back and forth. We're trading suplexes. We're trading roll ups, and uh, we get through. It looks like uh, some sort of a Scorpio goes for some sort of like slingshot, slingshot like flipping splash. He misses it. Uh, Barry Windham is able to answer with the top rope ax handle implant DDT. Match is over.
1: And that's a five minute eight second match.
0: Sure, and it wasn't, this wasn't a squash that went back and forth, but obviously we're pushing Barry Wyndham to make him look good for his title matchup against the Great Muda, and this was, they, they used this as like Barry Wyndham is using a match against somebody like Scorpio to kind of like work on strategies for his match against Muda coming up in about a month.
1: Right. Next segment is Cactus Jack and the Barbarian calling out Vader and Normdorf in an interview.
0: And once again, if you guys have heard Cactus Jack interviews, you've heard the Mick Foley interviews. Loved it. It was great. And one of my favorite parts is that he's talking about, you know, his his neck and the snap, crackle, and pop. And he specifically used the term sadistic Rice Krispies. Oh, my. Yeah, I love this promo. He, one of the one thing Mick Foley could always do was cut a promo. And they were, and if you notice, once he had the three faces of Foley, a Mankind promo, a Do Love promo, and a Catch a Jack promo were three completely different promos. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and they're talking about their opponents, which we come into that next match. Uh, Tech Sleizinger and Shanghai Pierce versus Cactus Jack and the Barbarian. Uh, Pierce and Jack are going
1: to be the ones to start this match.
0: Sure, but uh, Tech Sleizinger and Shanghai Pierce would go on in a few years to become the Godwins in WWF. The Pig Farmers, the Phineas I. Godwin, Henry O. Godwin, so their initials were Pig and Hog. And Sleizinger would also become Midian in the Ministry of Darkness, so... They would be in the WWF in the next two or three years.
1: Gotcha. Well, this seems like a pretty standard tag match as it goes on. The you are talking up Barbarian's agility for how big he is.
0: Yeah, well, he was always... And by the way, to this day, he still makes appearances at some indie shows and a lot of, like, conventions and signings. And this is a, probably a good 29, 30 years ago. Barbarian still looks roughly the same.
1: Yeah, some people just age like a fine
0: wine. Well, no, you can, Like, I'm talking like he's still muscular like that. He's still jacked like
1: that. Oh, that's what you meant.
0: Yeah, like, obviously his hair's grayer, and obviously he's gotten older, but he's
1: still jacked. Gotcha.
0: So, and basically, like this this was, um, what I noticed right off the bat is you said Captain Jack and Shanghai Pierce start things, keeping it even. Slazinger tags in, but Jack's like, nah, bro. So he gets on the apron just decides just to start trading blows on the apron instead
1: of waiting for him to come in. Right. This is possibly laying the seeds for a feud, or there was a feud going.
0: No, this is just helping to promote uh, Jack and Barbarian. It his Jigs. That was just how Jack's style was. He's like, screw it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna use my body as a weapon. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, well, shit, I tried.
1: Later on in the match, we have CJ and Barb tagging back and forth. And then Barbarian gets m- somehow muscled over to the hospital corner and Pierce is tagged in. And we get a chain wrestling sequence with lots of wrist locks and reversals.
0: And they try to double-team Barbarian, but he comes in and just clotheslines them both at the same time.
1: Yeah, bar- Yeah, Barbarian ducks that and knocks both of them down.
0: Sure, and then I don't, through all this, he comes in, Barbarian misses a rope attack. He went for one, got it, missed the second one. Pierce comes, tags in, but Barbarian instantly catches him with a uh, power slam for a two-count. And then we get to the finish where catches Jack, goes to hook in his double-arm DDT finisher on Sleizinger. Pierce comes in. He backdrops Pierce while having the DDT locked in, backdrops him and then lands the DDT for the win.
1: More recent wrestling fans will recognize the double underhook DDT. John Moxley, when he was in WWE as Dean Ambrose, used that as dirty deeds.
0: Yeah, it's just that's the double arm DDT that he's been using as Cactus Jack in Mankind for 30 years.
1: Right. And that match was five minutes, 13 seconds long. And I think that again, that was a good match.
0: Yeah, well, like it wasn't spectacular, but like I said, it, it was good. Everybody got a chance to get stuff in, and it did its job. And we go into the main event, and I was excited to see this, and I was not disappointed. It was for the U.S. title. Dustin Rhodes defending the U.S. title against Ricky Steamboat. And it was a lot of the same as the matches last week, and I'm not complaining. If you guys heard me talk about how great that last match was last week, we got a lot of the same here.
1: Just solid wrestling
0: the basic stuff, and you can honestly see why to this day both of them are still highly respected as teachers in
1: wrestling. Hmm. Dustin Rhodes is, in fact, still active in AEW at this point.
0: And he's actually one of their their teachers, and Ricky Steamboat helped teach during the FCW time when FCW was there before NXT. And Steamboat is actually another one of those that's in my top five, Ricky Steamboat. And it was just, this match is extremely equal that, you know, obviously Ricky Steamboat had the, the speed but Dustin Rhodes was still very fast for his
1: size. Absolutely.
0: And then you, obviously you knew that Dustin Rhodes had the strength advantage. Ricky Steamboat was surprisingly strong in his own own mind, own aspect.
1: So, yeah, this was an even match more or less the entire time.
0: Yeah, like this was basically, and there was a point where they go to, they countered a, basically they countered a hip toss into a hip toss into a hip toss into a hip toss, spilled into the ring, and you saw it got a little heated. They start shoving each other.
1: Going nose-to-nose. Nose. Yeah, even if you're good friends friends in something like this, I can imagine it getting heated.
0: Sure, absolutely. And that's what this was. They're basically just like, hey, we have until TV time remaining. So, obviously, we want to get this in before the episode's over. So, yeah, basically, this was just... Yeah, there's not much more to say that we... There's not much more to say about this match that we didn't say last week. Absolutely fantastic. So, we go in. Rhodes went for the Bulldog. And Seymour C- countered it through him. And then, basically, as soon as that happened... Uh, the bell rang because, hey, the episode's over, TV time remaining, there's no more TV time
1: remaining, so we call this as a draw. Right, and that was an 8 minute, 59 second, very good match.
0: Yeah, like, it was just as entertaining as the last one, and it didn't bother me that it was a draw. Usually, a lot of times you get a draw, people boo, it's like, no, this is, it's great, it continued the feud, that the, there wasn't really a feud, but it can still continue the whole mad, the storyline from last week. Both guys looked absolutely fantastic. You can tell, like, while these guys are considered some of the most... To this day, some of the most respected in the sport ever, and it's because of matches like this.
1: Yeah, they they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew what the other could do. They made it work.
0: Yeah, and they show that even though they were good friends, you know, in in, in WCW, that they didn't let that get between them when they, you know, obviously you want to, both of them wanted to be United States champion, and it went to a draw.
1: Yeah, like Ron Simmons said said a couple weeks ago, holding the title is addictive.
0: Yeah. Overall, the show was good. I actually had a good time watching this show, uh, obviously at least to me this was the the match of the night for this as well.
1: Absolutely match of the night. I'm I'm yeah, a whole show my letter letter grade scale again I'd give this an A minus.
0: I uh, you know what honestly absolutely I was going to say the exact same thing. Both shows were actually neither show from this week's uh, Saturday night or last week's was bad but this one was better and I thought both shows overall were better than last week their 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 counterparts last week.
1: Yeah both shows in this episode were a step up from last time.
0: So that is the week of January 18th, 1993 for the Dropkicks and Attractions podcast. Next week, we are coming into the Attractions part where we talk about the Bill Murray classic, Groundhog Day. Now, You had never seen this
1: before before the podcast, correct?
0: Surprisingly not. Like I said, I'm a huge Harold Ramis fan, Bill Murray fan, Ghostbusters Stripes. Surprisingly, have never seen this movie.
1: I haven't seen it either, but I don't watch a lot of movies anyway.
0: Yes, so and then the next, in two weeks, will be the next Drop Kicks part of the DNA podcast where we talk about Royal Rumble 1993. We are giving, as we explained in our first episode, uh, we are giving pay-per-views, their own special episode. So we will be talking about the 1993 Royal Rumble in length. And then after that, we will be talking about the a movie that I'm a big fan of and I'm excited for you to watch just because I just know how you are. We will be talking about the the great movie, True Romance, directed by Tony Scott, written by Quentin Tarantino, absolute stellar cast. I'm excited to see this because I know you don't watch a lot of movies like this, so I'm excited because I know some of the stuff that happens in this movie.
1: Yeah, I will be going into this completely blind.
0: Yes, and it's just, we've already talked about my favorite part of the movie, and if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. There's a scene where it's just Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper talking, and if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as crazy as that movie is, just those two guys talking is my favorite part of the movie.
1: Alrighty, I'll be looking forward to it.
0: So you can find us on YouTube where we will be every Friday at noon. And every Saturday will be the podcast. Right now we're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. Uh, We just we're working on getting in on the Google podcast. Basically, any podcast site that we use through Anchor, we're going to put it there. And if there's any other podcast site you guys listen to that you want to see us on, let us know. We'll do what we can. You can find the podcast on Twitter at capital D and capital A, podcast one. You can find me on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, Hover, at Victus. Basically, if I'm on, if it's a social media site I'm on, always look for Zanervictus. You're going to
1: find me. And I can be found at BigBot on most of the same socials.
0: So, once again... Thank you, everybody, for coming to listen to episode three of the Drop Kicks and Tractions podcast. And we will see you next week for Groundhog Day. Take care, everybody.